Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EVN Disrupt podcast. My name is Nejdet Zaturian. I'm the editor of the creative tech section here at EVN Report. My guest today was Susanna Shamachian, Vice President on Strategic Programming at the Foundation for Armenian Science and Technology. She joined us to discuss the organization's initiatives to improve education and science in Armenia, and she broke down how the current poor state of the country's education system can be viewed as an opportunity to pilot innovative new solutions. We also discussed FAST's new Generation AI program, which aims to bring artificial intelligence education to high schools in Armenia. Thank you for listening. Susanna, thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure. Let's start with learning a little bit about FAST. Tell us what FAST is and what FAST does. Mm -hmm. So FAST was established around six uh, years ago by uh, several influential diaspora in Armenians who came to realize after especially activities of 2016 that happened and also due to all the activities they were doing here that one of the important opportunities for Armenia to finally try to get rid of their challenges as a country from the geopolitical issues and being a leverage for other powers, but uh, having to say something to the world more than just uh, that we were the first Christian country, etc., uh, was to showcase what we have in innovation because of whatever we had as a legacy and whatever we have today globally in various uh, corners of the world uh, to try to amplify that and use that for making Armenia a stronger and more prosperous country. So that was the motivation and aspiration around uh, bringing and gathering some network and funding around FAST. Uh, In years, all of this has evolved into uh, a broader strategy and more Uh, focus on how exactly we imagine doing that. Uh, But the vision, again, is that Armenia can be a very innovative country, that Armenia has an opportunity to do a leapfrogging um, if we are very deliberate about it and if we try to plan in longer term rather than shorter term, which we usually do. Mm-hmm. What do you mean when you say leapfrogging? So technological leapfrogging is something that a very few amount of countries has done. So we know many of them uh, as best practices like Israel, Asia miracle countries like Singapore, uh, Malaysia, or Baltic countries like Estonia. Um, this means that within the time framework of 20, 25 years, a country is doing a very significant shift from not technologically developed and scientifically intensively developed country to a country that has innovation as one of the key drivers of economy. Um, Each of these countries have done it in a very different way. So in early years when FAST was established, there were several benchmarks done trying to understand how each of these countries have done that. Usually it happens in a form of an S-curve. That's why it's a leapfrog. So that you take from seven to 10 years to try to accelerate the speed Mm -hmm. of the growth. And then there's the leap and then you have to sustain mm-hmm. the leap in the longer run. And we had assumptions in 2018 that the team has developed that Armenia can do it. There are opportunities for that. Uh, Armenia has to put obviously several emphasis on some areas to be able to do that. And back in the days, we also had some projections on where Armenia has to go every five years to make sure that in 2041, which was selected as more like a symbolic uh, number 50 years after independence, the country has an opportunity to come to that um, leapfrog uh, momentum. Now, many of these things, unfortunately, uh, won't be relevant. I mean, the projections, because after the COVID And then after the war, the world around us in Armenia and globally has dramatically changed. Honestly, we we contemplated the opportunity and then decided that it is not necessary for us now to try to, again, do the reprojections, but rather uh, keep that as one of the sort of uh, guiding points where exactly we want to do and have that as a trajectory that we want to do when we structure programs for the country. Can you tell us a little bit about what the assumptions were in 2018 and what is it that changed? It's obvious to imagine all the things that has changed, but what are the things that changed that really changed those assumptions? A couple of important things is that, first of all, human capital development indicators are not very good in the country and they keep declining. And that's one of the biggest uh, gaps. And with COVID and then with war and emigration, thus an economic crisis. When you go down through the Maslow pyramid to the lower levels, 
it's very hard to try to do a societal and country level change on the peak of the uh, pyramid. So we have climbed down several levels and now we have to go up again. So when we were starting, for example, there is Global Innovation Index, which is one of the benchmarks for countries uh, from the perspective of what is their level of innovativeness. And when we were starting and doing the projections, and most of the projections are based on the key indicators that GII has, um, uh, we were 58th, if I remember the number correctly, globally. Uh, Now we are 82nd. So within five years, unfortunately, we have dropped. And that even in the case that still there is a lot of development in the ICT sector, still we have inflow of a lot of uh, tech companies and a lot of positive dynamics in startup ecosystem. All in all, even with all of that on a macroeconomic and macro level when it comes to innovation, and how fast the world is moving and how we are moving. Unfortunately, we are not going forward. So one of the important things for us at FAST is how do we make sure that we evaluate the situation as it is, Mm -hmm. not as we want to see it, Mm -hmm. but as it is. And how do we always keep in mind how fast the world is moving? Because sometimes what, what unfortunately we register in Armenia is the fact that we see dynamics in Armenia uh, makes us think that we have progress, but the world is much, 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 much faster. Right. And the fact that we are moving doesn't mean that uh, we are competing. We might be moving, but very slowly and not going background pace. and not right. keeping pace, etc. So for us, it's very important to have that objective sort of benchmark and assessment where we are globally. Mm-hmm. And moving is important, definitely. It's not enough if we want to live frog. It's enough to just move forward, but it's not enough to be competitive. So competitive, globally competitive is a phrase we use a lot. Yeah in our language. I was a part of a conversation probably about a year ago where someone said, you know, in 2021, Armenian startups rate something like 200 to $250 million. And this is just Armenia-based startups. And someone said, well, globally, you know, the number was this, and it was like a record year, and we should put that into context and stuff. And someone made the point that, well, that's true, but in the past, maybe we wouldn't have even gotten the 200 million, right? But it's a really interesting perspective to hear it from you now that you're right, you know, we probably didn't even keep up when comparing to how much things scaled in in larger ecosystems and in the rest of the world. So uh, making sure that we're not just sort of on a treadmill and we're actually making progress is, is something to, I think, keep in mind. And it's a really like sobering and honest take that I appreciate. Yeah. So one of the things you said is that on the Global Innovation Index, we fell uh, significantly. Is it simply a factor of that we didn't keep up with how fast the rest of the world went? Or were there factors within Armenia that brought us down as well? So first of all, I mean, Global Innovation Index is important as a a benchmark, but rankings are a very tricky world, all rankings. It's just a tool to try to assess where we are uh, in terms of various indicators. But even within GII, there are a lot of also irrelevant indicators. So we try to also, when looking into those, filter out what is at the core of innovation because there are 80 plus indicators there and only maybe 30 something are relevant to R&D, innovation, entrepreneurship, etc. An important, very important factor here is there were a lot of systemic problems that were aggregating many, many years and had their culmination in terms of bad consequences within the, fi- the last five years and are still having those. One of the biggest ones of those is the educational system. So I myself have been, before joining FAST, working in university system and also leading a non-formal education entity uh, for many years. Um, And there were many, many crises and gaps in terms of the quality of education, in terms of the pipeline of talent that we have and that we lose in terms of how industry is collaborating and not collaborating with educational um, system. And all of those problems that we face today that we talk about were visible eight, nine years ago. Unfortunately, no one wanted to resolve those. And the fact that we delayed that is just um, one of the maybe most painful strategic problems that we had as a country. Because today what we have in schools and universities could be at least partially avoided if seven, eight years ago some things were done. 
today it's much much harder to try to pull it out from the hole it is in and then try to do something uh, with it. On the other hand, trying to be more optimistic because that's the nature of myself, we also see a big opportunity there as well. So yes, unfortunately, there were a lot of things that we could do to make sure that we have better education, we have better balance between what the industry is trying to do and what uh, the educational is doing. Um, and all of that, uh, we could inter internationalize education better. We could make sure that our students at schools uh, don't choose profession just from the perspective what will be the shortest cut for getting money, mm. but what they dream about, what they are good at. Because we look at surveys and research and it's, it's very sad. It's very devastating to see that a lot of bright kids don't even think about it and their families don't think about it either because of the socioeconomical situation they're in. And you can't blame them, again, coming yeah. back to the Maslow pyramid. Uh, but on the other hand, there is a big opportunity there as well, because this is not a purely Armenian problem. Armenia just has worse situation due to some Soviet legacy and being very small and many, many of the disruptions, including negative, happening faster than in other places. But educational systems are deteriorated now globally. And especially after COVID, a lot of shock has happened to many educational systems. And the world is trying to figure out what the future of education is for already many years. And I read hundreds of pages produced by think tanks and development agencies. And the best they produce is that, well, the future of education has to be digital and the role of the teacher has to change. And that's the only two things you get out of those reports, which is which is not tomorrow, it's blind, already yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that said, given the culture of education we have in Armenia, because we do have a culture of education, being educated and transferring knowledge, whether it was language or culture or religion, and then craftsmanship, etc., etc., was part of our survival code mm. as Armenians. And I really love uh, this paradigm because being educated or being able to transfer knowledge was part of our survival. And now that we don't, well, at least partially, we don't have to survive and we can think about deeper knowledge, we have been also being able to transfer that culture of knowledge into other paradigms. That's why when, for example, in Soviet Union, we were exposed to so many educational opportunities, we were able to absorb it. That's why when people are in diaspora, they are able to absorb the knowledge opportunities, the best of the universities, and then really um, leverage the knowledge they get to create something new because we have that culture of education. So having that is a big advantage compared to other nations and countries. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have deteriorated educational institutions could be an opportunity here because we could build up on the culture of education on trying to imagine something really innovative in education, trying to create new models and solutions for education that really work, that work better, and try to come, come up with the next Finnish model or whatever that next educational yeah. model is in Armenia. And Armenia is small enough for us to be able to pilot and then scale it uh, on our system rather than any other developed country would be able to try to do that change or transformation. So I myself really being passionate about education, see a big opportunity there. And we at FAST also have some under radar sort of research workings being done to see whether we can come up with some sort of pilots to be done in Armenia to bring that type of a solution. Um, I recall you saying once in one of your interviews that um, oftentimes people look at the Finnish example as this really like shining beacon of uh, what education should be. And then you said something that I thought was really interesting and astute was, you know, there are cultural differences in the world that might not necessarily lend to implementing some system that has worked in another country. What is Armenia? I mean, you spoke already a little bit about Armenia's education culture, but what are some things within our culture that when you guys are doing your research and trying to find projects to pilot in Armenia, what are you looking at for things that need to be accommodated for, things that need to be sort of fit in with within Armenia? And what is maybe something that could be a pilot? Could you maybe like just present us something? Yeah. So at the moment, we try to focus within that uh, space on early childhood education. There are things that are agnostic of culture. It's more like human biology, neuroscience, 
how we learn, what type of environment do we require, what is the maximum pace that you can have a kid learning, like, and what is the best type of content uh, or interaction it's better to uh, provide the content in. So first layer of work is just to understand better the nature of learning from the biology, psychology, and neuroscience perspective, because it doesn't matter who you right. are. The second layer will be, and we are not there yet, but the second layer will be, yes, to adjust the pilot to Armenia and to see kids today from the families and the environments today that they are coming from. Would they be a sort of what additional things we need to create to make sure that this experience is as smooth as possible for them? I don't have the answer for that at the moment. But what I can refer to is what we do with less innovative things, which is the Generation AI project, which we consider as uh, a shorter term program rather than, you know, building a big innovation model for education, but things that we need to do today mm -hmm. in shorter and midterm. Mid and in Generation AI, we try to make sure that whatever we structure as an educational solution, and this is for teenagers, it's high school students. It's right? high school students. Is adjusted to the motives of students and parents because there is a very particular thing on how people choose professions, how you know people choose high schools and then universities in Armenia. And again, one of the biggest factors is the socioeconomical sustainability that you can gain through this choice. And unfortunately, if we get a bit out of the bubble that we work in, the understanding of the general public of what opportunities there are is quite limited. Still, I don't know, doing a legal career or a medical career or going to banking is the top choices in the country because that's where, you know, people think that you can get a better right. working condition, etc. And uh, we have to really, really consider here that we have a very high percentage of people uh, close to poverty level, according to official statistics. And this is calculated based on the minimum salary range we have in the country. But there is also the minimal consumer basket, which is much higher than the minimal salary. Mm -hmm. And if we were to calculate the average income of people based on that, we would have much more people in the range that, yeah. you know, are at just barely trying to survive. Yeah. So it's very obvious they are going to go after choices that they can A, afford, B, that can help them survive. Mm -hmm. So they don't need to go and look too far away. One of the things that we are trying to do, and it is important, and ideally we wouldn't be doing if this problem didn't exist, we do a lot of work, or we will be doing a lot of work, uh, when it comes to popularization of math-related specializations and then artificial intelligence, raising awareness what it is, and then really showing a trajectory how kids can, if they invest into this type of education, can succeed regardless of choosing an AI career. So even if they just choose the math and the right. basics of AI and have really good literacy in AI, have really good level of mathematics, regardless of what they choose, they are going to be marginally more successful and they are going to have more income mm -hmm. than in average they would have in other case. And then going beyond there, that uh, we obviously are trying to nudge kids to go toward AI career and more a career of an AI innovator, what we call. So either becoming a researcher in the space or creating a new technology and becoming a founder or being in an R&D team in an industry, which means if we look at different benchmarks, how much income AI right. engineers are getting, obviously, is a guarantee of a very high income and at the same time, very highly intellectual career. Those are types of things that ideally we wouldn't be doing if we were just doing an educational program. Right. But we have to do it because we have to work with the society and make sure they do see a longer term perspective here. And they do understand the necessity to invest in education in longer run, especially given what today is going on in the world and in Armenia with short term training, like there is a lot of three to six month training you can take and you can get a salary for that. And if you are really dependent on an income, then that's exactly what you do. Again, you can't blame people for thinking like that. But what we have been witnessing within university system was that, for example, industry was basically headhunting students first starting from third, fourth, 
years of study now, even high school, and trying to put them into internship and junior positions and giving them already salaries even when they don't know (laughs) what they are doing, just for really keeping them as a potential talent and having an opportunity to invest in them earlier on and teach them whatever they have to teach. But what this ends up into, and now the industry is now sort of in the cycle that it has created itself due to the low quality of education, that we have a lot of juniors who have limited education because they didn't get good higher education because they were demotivated and they didn't study and they might formally have a diploma or they might not even have a diploma and they hit a bar at some point and you can't grow them anymore. They at best get to the mid-level and they can't become seniors and we have now a gap of you know, having too many juniors in the country, almost not having seniors and uh, being forced to headhunt from other countries, etc. And having this complete behavioral shift and demotivation toward higher education because it is completely irrelevant from what the industry needs. Hmm. So all of that impacts, again, the choices and the behaviors of people. And we have to manage all of that if we want to be able to really nurture innovators in Armenia, not to be just caterers of the world and just catering the big MNCs that are here, which is obviously good, but if it's the only thing that the country is putting emphasis on, it's not strategically sustainable. So we do have to make sure that CRISP is not an exception of exception of exception in a country, but is a result of X types of things that the country is doing that we have on regular basis, X amount of crisps created here. Right. And it's not an anomaly that we have today, unfortunately. Right. And I guess the onus is on the universities to present to their students that there's something that they can give which second, third year student can't get from just immediately starting to work, right? Yeah, unfortunately, the gap between the university education and industry and also a bit blurred lines between vet education, vocational education, and university are causing a lot of problems. So first of all, definitely there is a big need for vocational education in the country. Not everyone has to go to the university, and there's nothing bad in not going to university and having a vet diploma. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in banking system, a lot of people in ICT system could be just graduates of vocational educational institutions. But we don't have respect for that type of institutions for various reasons. That's a global problem. Yeah, I don't think we're gonna go into that. And then second, this has brought to a situation where two things happened. One is that a lot of industry representatives have started to create academies within their businesses to make sure that they have a pipeline of talent that they train and recruit from Mm -hmm. because they couldn't recruit from universities. On the other hand, university for a long time was trying to resist that and saying, well, fundamental education is very important and it is important, but it also has to be practical. Um, And in many cases, it wasn't practical. That was the big gap we had. But now, unfortunately, universities, because their funding system of university system is really, really lame. <laughs> no other word to use. It's very inefficient because it's based on the headcount of people. So universities sustain only based on tuition fees mm-hmm. or the scholarships and funding they get from if they are public universities for students from the government, which means they don't bother about the quality of education and KPIs because otherwise... Managed they are not going to be surviving. So that's why if you see at the dropout level, we have very low dropout level. Um, And I usually make jokes about this on what you have to do to be able to be dropped out of the university because there's literally almost nothing you can do to force the university to expel you because you pay a tuition fee. Right, you're a customer. Yes. So because it has that type of a system of funding, Unfortunately, many universities have started to do a lot of educational services that are equivalent to vocational education. Hmm. And many universities, including in in ICT sector or banking sector or insurance sector, have started to reshape their programs more to tailor the needs of the industry to Hmm. both get funding from the industry and have tuition fees from the parents because you then say, well, you get practical education and you will get employed. But 
that's not higher education right. and right. it's not an armenian problem so this is actually a global problem but again because the country is so small the it's change and yeah. the shift and the impact of it is so big that within five seven years it has just completely ruined the entire quality of education do you mean that like bachelor's degree programs at existing armenian institutions that used to train computer scientists and stuff are tailoring those programs towards basically vocational training stuff or do you mean independent of those programs they are opening up vocational training uh, so many of the master programs are very much tailored to industry needs that i've noticed yeah. that is the first thing. Second, undergraduate uh, programs, many of them now dropped a lot of fundamental things that were very important for you to actually become a really proper engineer or developer. And because let's say industry doesn't need it and they have agreements with different industry representatives that, okay, if we have at least this, this is enough for us. And because many of the students still combine education with work, right for obvious reasons. They have other irrelevant stuff there, just auxiliary mm -hmm. uh, to whatever they are doing. And a lot of, again, fundamental knowledge and skills you would want them to have is dropped mm -hmm. or is done in a very shallow and less demanding way. We have to also consider that we also have lack of faculty now for right. also many reasons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that is impacting the quality of education. Mm -hmm. But uh, to be honest, if we, if we speak about education, this is going to take three hours. <laughs> I just want to ask one more question, though, and you're obviously the expert on this. But is it in some ways like a chicken and egg problem? Because in order to get a larger percentage of the population to look at education as like you know, this four year, like um, really like deep education thing that you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to be having a part time job or some sort of job after first or second year. You need people's socioeconomic status to rise in the country because to some extent it's driven by need, right? That sort of want to go and get a job immediately and stuff. So is it possible to solve it while the country's socioeconomic status has not risen? Or, is, or am I thinking about it the wrong way? It's a very complex problem, but just to bring perspective to this, deficiencies we have in managing higher education are so bad that even if we just started to manage it better, we could get significant shifts in quality even with the socioeconomical burden. Why? For example, I think we have now 62 or 63 universities and we have under 80,000 students. This mm. is a ridiculous number. Sorry, so how, many, how many universities did you say? 62 or 63. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the number of institutional funding, this is public and private, but it doesn't matter. The money are there, right? Mm -hmm. You spend money on infrastructure, on administration, on all of it, right? So the proportion of universities and the number of students and the number of faculty is so scattered mm -hmm. around the country that it's just unreasonable. If this was business, it would be like the best failure case, right. how you can sort of mismanage resources. And this is both funding and infrastructure and faculty because many faculty members are either here or there or vice versa. The same faculty member is doing a lot of teaching in five places. Why do you do that? Right. Don't do that. And obviously a lot of other um, deficiencies. So just to, like the funny benchmark I always bring here when I was working as head of international department in one of the local universities, we were visiting University of Sapienza, which is one of the top universities in Italy and Rome, but obviously it's not the only university in Rome. And it had that one university, it's big, it's their alma mater, German State University of uh, Italy, had 110,000 students five years ago in one single university. Mm -hmm. And we have less than 80,000 uh, students in, the country. in 63 universities. Yeah. So this is something I have been vocal about for the last maybe seven years. And just recently, we started noticing that some dialogue around this is being shaped. The important thing is to be very strategic about this. You can't go and close 63 universities and say, well, tomorrow we're going to have four. Right. That's not going to be the case. If you do that, you're going to lose all of it. So it's very important to know how we have to transition and how do we merge and consolidate all the resources in the best and right and strategic way. And then at the same time, 
dramatically increase the quality of education. That's like one big systemic change, which unfortunately the country is quite afraid of or doesn't have an understanding how this transition can be made uh, to make sure that we don't lose what we have and then we gain obviously better results. That's one thing. The second thing is that we still have, even if we do that, we are going to still have a gap in terms of the quality curricula and quality faculty. Mm-hmm. But there are solutions to this as well. First of all, our practice, and in general, it's not, it's an obvious thing. We have a big, big, big potential in diaspora. There are hundreds of scientists, there are hundreds of professors all over the world. Many of them do ad hoc training here, come and do some non-formal visiting professorship. Now we are trying to bring the culture of formal visiting professorship um, into the country through our advanced research grants. We fund them and try to facilitate with the university for them to make sure this is actually visiting professorship, not just them non-formally coming to a university. It's a nightmare in terms of administration, but it is working. And we see like an army of people that is willing to be teaching, not just coming for three days, but teaching a semester, teaching a module, et cetera, many of them are ready to do it for free. If it's sustained in the right way, there are so many tools with the European funding, with the US funding, with Fulbright, Erasmus, and all of the other tools to make sure this is also facilitated and you don't have to spend millions of dollars on this, but you have really good faculty coming into the country. We have enough of Armenians globally to be able to build really good curricula all over the country. Mm. I would hope someone can prove me wrong. So that's something that is a big, big untapped potential. And really it requires just some facilitation. It's Mm -hmm. not a dramatic, uh, you know, problem. It just needs someone to do, to create a platform and to do the facilitation and just own uh, the process. And obviously, internationalization of education, meaning joint degrees, uh, not only visiting professorships, but study semesters, etc. Also many things you can do to make sure that you have really good programs uh, here. And as a side thing to this, I still think that uh, we also need to put a big emphasis on vocational education, because it is already today, one of the key drivers of um, educational change. We need good vocational education. There are many professions that don't need higher education. And we don't even know if higher education will exist in 10 years time in the shape at least that we see it. So it's very important to do these shifts if we really want to transform Armenia. There's like another 20 things I want to ask you about education, but we'll be here forever. I'm I'm happy to do Uh, it. As you see, I'm passionate about education. We'll we'll have to have you back one day to speak further on that. But I want to move on to some of your programs. Um, We touched on Generation AI, but tell us the details of the program. What is the curriculum like? What do the students go through? So we have shaped Generation AI as the first pillar of creating pipeline of AI talent in Armenia. So the way we approach in general programs is that we... We want to bring systemic change and we want to make sure that whatever we're doing won't need us as an entity at some point. So for us, it's extremely important to have an exit strategy or sustainability strategy because our objective is that in 20 years, we have leapfrogged and we don't need fast. So with Generation AI, with many programs that we were doing that uh, included like short-term training for AI professionals or recruiting researchers, funding fellows and PhD students, on and on we were coming to the same problem that educational opportunities and the career opportunities provided to students are so fragmented uh, that we lose a lot of people on various levels. <laughs> we lose them to the industry, we will lose them to uh, foreign universities, we lose them to other professions, etc., etc. So the idea was to come up with the trajectory that a person would have to take to become an AI innovator. So just to uh, bring in context, and you might know that AI is one of the fields that we think Armenia can be globally competitive in. So many of the things that we do at FAST and many of the things that we try to advocate for for the country to do the leapfrogging is based on AI as one of the fields, one of the key fields to invest in. This means we need a lot of AI innovators. So people who are creating the Mm -hmm. technology or who are really necessary to companies and research centers that create technology. And that's exactly what we are trying to do. And understand what is the critical mass of these people that we have to create in Armenia for Armenia to gain an important place on the global map Mm -hmm. of AI. 
obviously we're not going to compete with China and USA. That's not what we're trying to do. But we do want to be an epicenter of AI talent for many companies to look to Armenia as a location for them to create the AI R&D centers. And again, for us to be able to create AI solutions from here for the world. So that's the vision. Now to do that, we obviously need a lot of talent because we are not going to ever be able to compete with bigger countries who headhunt the AI talent from all over the world. So we need to nurture them here. We need to leverage diaspora potential. And obviously some foreigners will be coming as a magnet towards the environment created. But again, the biggest emphasis is on people here on the ground. And coming back to the culture of education that I was mentioning, and also the legacy in STEM, math, and all of that that we know that the country has, only logical to invest in that. But if we start from university level, and we have been working a lot with the university students because of all the things that we've just discussed for 30 minutes, it's too late. It's too late to start working with students when they are already in their undergrads. Hmm. Because if we look into statistics and the dynamics of last 10 years and then even worse, like five, seven years, the number of people going towards STEM directions is decreasing. Regardless of the fact that the country has blooming ICT sector, startup ecosystem and all of the hype that we have around that, if we look at the macro level, the number of students going towards STEM directions is decreasing every year. Hmm. In the last, I think, eight years, it has decreased around 30%. And then on each level later on, so we have fewer people coming to higher ed when it comes to STEM. We have even fewer people going from undergraduate to master and even fewer people going from master to PhD. So the entire chain is deteriorating. Obviously, there are things that we can do in the higher education. And one of the things that we are trying to do with Advance and some other programs is to see what are shorter term sort of uh, patching we can do in higher education. Uh, but the one of the biggest bottlenecks is the pipeline of people coming to higher education mm-hmm. and quality of those students coming to higher education. So if you speak to any dean of any program with math basis, they would be telling you that the first one and a half years of the program, they spend on closing the gap of knowledge that the students had to bring in from the school. Mm which means that the burden of the school education is coming on the higher education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you imagine the chain. Now what we are trying to do, and we have been assessing with, for example, some of the programs that we were doing, such as Unit 1991, which was mainly for uh, 12th uh, grade students. When we were doing math tests all over the country, we would have 500 people applying, 300 people applying every six months. The good math level of students, they had only coming from maybe seven, eight schools all over the country. Most of them Yerevan, mm-hmm. one, two schools from Marsis. Most of the students were coming from these schools. And you know those schools. So those would be Fismat, I, Quant, Shirakazi. Half of them are paid, very expensive. And those which are public, highly competitive to get right. in. Very hard to stay. It's right? a huge privilege to be going yes. to one of those schools. So. Obviously, when you look in those numbers, you do understand that it's not the students. It's the access to good math education. Right. Right. Not that we have only several hundred, right, smart math students. Right. It's just what type of teachers and curricula they were exposed to. Mm-hmm. So one of the bottlenecks we see at larger scale in terms of talent pipeline is access to good quality education on national level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what we are trying to close with Generation AI. So now the entire program is structured in such a way that we try to bring good math education starting from 10th grade. So when they transition from 9th grade to higher school, we start with uh, good math education, but we don't take only tops of the tops. We take the kids that have the potential in math. How do you value that? Okay, so at the moment with the pilot program uh, that we are starting in September, so it hasn't started yet? No. The prep work and the mm-hmm. recruitment and selection and content creation has started from last year, but the actual students will start being educated uh, within the programs starting from the September. At the moment, what we do, we have selected the schools that have formally advanced math as part of their curriculum, which means these are all schools that have the so-called math track or mathematics track or informatics track any, or economics track. Any of the high school tracks that would require some level of good math. 
which means humanities, social sciences, well, humanities wouldn't be part of this. But this is very like formal choice because most of these schools do have that track, but that doesn't mean they have really good math education as, as uh, I have demonstrated with the statistics. Um, so um, the eligible schools are those that have pool of students that have at least a level of mathematics that assumptively means that they can do advanced math. And after that, we have designed a curricula that would help them within one year to do a significant leap within their math sort of knowledge. So if they know X level of mathematics, which is defined by our curricula team, then within one year, we will be trying to help them to do a big progress in their math education uh, so that they will be able to go to more advanced courses when it comes to 11th and 12th grades. So that's what what's the first thing. Second important thing is how do we teach the mathematics? So if you look into the textbooks and the methodology that we have in the country, um, it's it's quite boring how mm-hmm. the mathematics is, is being uh, taught and it's very ineffective as well in many ways. So there are so many creative and good tools for teaching mathematics today. And not only digital, I mean methodologies. So what we are doing now, and it will be deployed in September, is we have developed with expert groups special content that can be used by teachers and students for active learning, more engaging learning of mathematics based on all the topics identified. And hopefully, and that's exactly the purpose of the pilot, that we are going to prove that if you change the methodology and the materials with which the mathematics is taught, that is going to be a big differentiator in terms of the learning outcomes Mm -hmm. that the students are going to have. So that's like one big building block. In parallel to that, because AI education is the ultimate outcome we are uh, trying to achieve with this program, we have basics of computer science and Python. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a computer language that we are going to teach to the students as a building block for AI. Uh, so that as well is being deployed in 10th grade. It's not very math intensive, so it's being done in parallel. All of the students, um, me and you, can go and learn from, with the material that we have created now. And again, uh, the purpose here is to impact a bigger group of students. One thing that we do at least is we improve math and provide Python education to a bigger group of students. Mm -hmm. At the moment, that's going to mean 150 students from 10 schools this September. Second, what what is being done already based on that is we are taking them toward more advanced math up until 12th grade. So math gets more and more complex. Um, And it's a merit-based program. So after each year of studies, they obviously will, will be either... Uh, provided an opportunity to do the more advanced course or not based on the learning outcomes they had. And then from 11th grade, we will be offering them two tracks. Either they do basics of AI, and this is going to be for people who weren't able to have very fast-paced learning or don't want to do an AI career, uh, but it is a tool for them to get at this basic literacy in AI and obviously to continue learning and better exploring what that means and maybe right. potentially later on again. So it's part of that awareness raising, literacy raising, etc. Larger group of students has to go to this track. Those that are most advanced, so tops of the top students who are super talented, like FISMAT equivalent kids, uh, who can do super advanced uh, uh, mathematics and very demanding and you know well-paced uh, program are going to go to the advanced AI track where they are already going to start learning the basics of machine learning, basics of deep learning, etc. And then in 12th grade, since behaviorally we know most of the students don't go to school in 12th grade and prepare for the university, um, they are going to do the project-based learning, both of them. So whether it's basics of AI or advanced AI, just the levels of complexity will be different, but they will be doing project-based learning. And this will be done either with industry partners or research teams that we work with when it comes to AI. And um, the main purpose obviously is for them to touch a project, an actual product or an actual research with AI while they are in school. And hopefully that helps them, first of all, learn faster if they can do that. Um, and then second of all, make you know better choices in terms of what exactly they would want to do within that wide spectrum of um, yield in the university education. One important thing is that all of these things are also an important foundation for other math-based professions. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we're trying to do and see is what are the synergies or what are the partners that we can bring in to make sure that because we do the math education 
if you add robotics on top of it, you can do other things. If you add physics on top of it, you can do other things. Or you can do cybersecurity, or you can do all so many things. We are going to lead the AI part of it, and we are going to do the larger scale mathematics mm-hmm. education. And then our endeavor is to bring in more partners to leverage the math education and do other fields of studies. Right. Because obviously we don't say that everyone has to do yeah. AI. Right. These classes that the students would be participating in, would they replace the math class that they would have done in ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade? Or is it a part of the regular curriculum? They I guess, are part of regular curricula. They are replacing their math education. So those of them who choose this track, they will be uh, having math within this uh, program. They are not going to have uh, other, well, they are going to have only the geometry classes if they have it, because we're not going to touch upon the geometry part of things. But this is going to replace their algebra algebra, uh, classes. This is going to replace also, uh, so Python will also be part of their former curriculum. So it'll replace informatics or something? Uh, actually, it's not replacing because according to the new standards of module-based year learning, you can uh, choose between the subjects. So within this track, Python will be one of the subjects that they choose instead of something else, but not informatics because informatics is a mandatory. And then AI will be, depending on which track it is, will, will be partially part of, again, their former cu- curricula because, again, based on the module system, we have an opportunity to have several hours of education for AI. And then for the advanced track, several hours will be sort of extracurricular, uh, especially when it comes to already project-based learning, et cetera, et cetera. But most of the program is part of former curricula. It is going to be part of their diploma. It is with, during the class time. Mm-hmm. It is in the school, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the entire idea is to make sure this is not extracurricular. Right. And it took us a long time to get to the architecture of this with the ministry. But this is one of the biggest and fundamental components of this program. It would be super easy for us to do this extracurricular, right. but we don't want to do it extracurricular. Because the focus would then be yes. lost a bit, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we want, to, we want the systemic change. And we also, importantly, want to make sure this is a very uh, partnership-based program. And it's not only ministry, but all the industry partners, all the other educational institutions and programs and nonprofits that exist in the field. Um, The idea is to consolidate best expertise, uh, best resources around this to help bring the systemic change. Mm -hmm. Because the government can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. IPE can't do it alone. TFA can't do it alone. UAT can't do it alone, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So the entire idea is how do we make sure that we properly synergize all of these initiatives and Mm -hmm. leverage the strength of each of these entities to help bring that systemic change to the country. Right, right. I learned a ton from this conversation. There's like another ton of things I (laughs) wanted to talk to you about, but I kept you for an hour already, so you'll definitely have to come back one day. Um, I'll ask you one last question. At the beginning, you said that you guys were looking at what you would hope would become like an S-curve. Traditionally, our last question of the podcast is always, where do you hope to see your project or whatever you're working on in five to 10 years? I'm curious where Armenia needs to get to to sort of reach the first part of the S-curve, which is all that buildup, which then leads to more exponential growth. And when do you think we'll get there? I know it's a tough question, but your best bet. So there, like one thing we always contemplate when, when discussing the innovative future of Armenia is what is the best direction to go? And obviously no one knows. So, I mean, we can argue whether it's AI or it's quantum computing or biotech. It doesn't matter. It's important to choose that or choose those couple of niches and be very focused on those. So one big important thing we really need to do to make sure we are on the S-curve is to focus. Mm -hmm. We have to choose the battles. We can't be good at everything. We can't increase the research funding and horizontally fund everything. It's not effective, especially with the margin of funding we have. So one big important thing for us to get on the S-curve is consolidation of the vision. Which battles do we want to fight? Which global value chains we want to succeed in? There are several benchmarks, several researches that show a range of seven, eight directions. We need to choose two, three. And we really have to be very deliberate about those for the upcoming seven, eight years. We need dramatic educational changes in the country. And that doesn't always mean school and higher educational system. So it means all of it Mm -hmm. in combination. 
all the new solutions that are available for us to be able to have better talent in the country, all of the traditional solutions we still have to do because you are not going to be able to have a behavioral change in seven years uh, and, you know, not have kids in schools. So it has to be a balance and combination of all those solutions that help us create the talent. Hopefully, we have to have very dynamic collaboration between all Armenians globally and leverage all of the network and knowledge that we have globally for getting to mm -hmm. that S-curve because we have enough resources and most of them are not financial. Sometimes we say, well, because we don't have funding, we don't right. have this. If this is the right thing, money will come, A. B, we can manage the money that already is there more efficiently as well. But the biggest asset we have is the knowledge and network accumulated in the Armenian nation, let's put it that way, globally. globally. And we need to leverage it in the right ways. And our, again, Armenia is very small. And sometimes it's a disadvantage. In this particular case, it's a big advantage. Mm. So we just need the right saturation of resources and efforts to be able to do that leap. I find it very feasible. I personally, from whatever I see and we add fast, whatever we do, we do see there's a way to do it if various players and all players together consolidate the resources in the right directions. And again, we collaborate and we focus. Our belief is that AI and some niches in life sciences could be one of those focus areas. Obviously, there are other opportunities when it comes, for example, to quantum, some advanced materials, microelectronics and other sectors. So this is negotiable. So we need the consensus around that. But we do need the consensus. We need efficient management of whatever resources we have here. We need efficient management of all the resources we have globally. Enough. It doesn't have to be 100%. Maybe we just need 20%. You mean 20% of like, collective focus? Yes. Maybe we need just 20% of the collective focus to come to that tipping point, because it's all about the tipping point. Once you have the tipping point, the rest comes along. Right. And obviously human capital development is at core of this. I think in eight years, if we are very deliberate, we can see a big shift in many things. We're not going to leapfrog, but we're going to be at that tipping point to do, to be prepared to start doing the leap in mm -hmm. the next five, six years. That's definitely a conversation that I think will continue and continue. And I, I wish you guys a lot of luck with that. I think the work you guys are doing is both fascinating and, and super important. Thank you so much for the conversation today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.